Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 221, being recorded on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Well, given the tragic events this week, um, we totally understand if talking shop isn't really a top priority for you, but we thought that some of our listeners may be in the mood for a little bit of a mental distraction. We, we sure are. And there is some interesting news happening in the world of commerce. So we thought we would bring you what's been going on in the last couple of weeks with that focus. Before we jump into the e-commerce retail payments news, Jason, what have you been up to? Yeah, uh, I have been uh, just talking COVID nonstop with clients, which is exhausting and mostly depressing, to be totally honest with you, Scott. Um. But uh, like at some point, we should we'll probably do a deep dive on the show about all that. Um, uh, but that is not tonight. Um, I did do a couple between all these talks. I have done a couple of interviews recently. So in the highly unlikely event, you want even more Jason opinion. Uh, there's a couple new written things out there. So I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes. But uh, uh, I got a chance to do a, an interview with the National Retail Federation that they published last week. And then uh, a past guest on the show, Chris Perry, does these um, interviews on LinkedIn that he calls uh, Leaders of Change. And since he couldn't find any leaders uh, this week, he he interviewed me instead. Nice. I missed the NRF um, thing. What was the overall topic on that? Uh, well, you know, uh, talking a lot, of, um, just a brief interview about the adoption and transition to digital and commerce. So stuff that... Maybe not um, very shocking to listeners on our show, but to a lot of the the more traditional brick and mortar retail side of NRF, uh, they still need some evangelizing. So, so they they wheeled me out to talk digital transformation. What's digital? How do payments work? Stuff like that. What are these smartphones that people speak of? Yeah, it's mostly uh, it's it's just store nine nine nine. It's a a store on the interweb run by the interns. Well, let's tease the COVID thing. So what are your clients thinking about? Are they thinking about kind of, I keep hearing this new normal, um, which is kind of maybe overdone, but maybe that's your favorite phrase. Yeah. But, you know, so, so I think we all agree there's going to be a lot of consumer behavior changes. Is that kind of like what people want to know about or? What, that that is part of vibe? it. Uh, uh, Rashad uh, Tabakawala, who, who was on our show um, a month or two ago, I can't, I can't keep track of time anymore. Um, he calls it the new abnormal, which maybe uh, feels more apropos to me. Um, but we are like a super interesting thing is there's a bunch of, uh, new behaviors we're seeing from consumer, mostly as a result of, of shelter in place orders. And so there's, there's really interesting questions about each of those behaviors are they a permanent new behavior? Is there going to be a counter behavior as soon as the shelter in place orders lift, which like we are now starting to see shelter in place orders lifted? Um, is is there going to be a new behavior that's some someplace in between the old and the new? 
the scenario planning about like which of these are permanent versus temporary shifts in, in shopping behavior are super interesting. So we have a lot of conversations about that. Um, but I'll be honest, a lot of my clients are looking on the slightly longer horizon. And, you know, what they're really thinking a lot about now is kind of shifting into the recession playbook and how they, you know, uh, appeal to more value oriented consumers and, you know, how um, deep and long the recession is likely to be and what what the uh, potential recovery looks like. Um, so a lot of kind of conversations about uh, how how the the recession will likely impact various businesses. Um, one I bring up and that we talk a lot about, with clients about is uh, how the world changes because of the changes in the landscape. So we're seeing tons of stores close. We're seeing tons of uh, market share getting consolidated into the biggest players in every category. And so if you're a, a brand, as many of my clients are, it's a pretty big deal. Like the, um, the, your top few customers are, you know, getting a lot more leverage over you than they had before. And so, you know, the pe people have to think about operating in a different competitive landscape than, than they were thinking about pre COVID. Um, and then I, I tend, uh, we, we have, uh, brought in like these epidemiologists and these economists and we're, you know, trying to do the best job possible of painting a picture of, of like, how, how uh, what recovery looks like for this whole thing. And it's mostly super Debbie downer news. And it's, uh, you know, it's mostly evidence that like there's going to be repercussions from this that last for a considerable period of time. So folks that were hoping that like, this is really something they just have to worry about through the rest of 2020 or maybe even 2021 or, or unfortunately probably optimistic. So, so having a lot of conversations about consumers about why that might be. Okay, cool. Way to tease up um, uh, an exciting deep dive that we may put down next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that will depress the hell out of you. Exactly. I do try to put some happy moments in there as as uh, bits of levity. Nice. I'm sure that lands real nice, real well. Yeah, yeah. You were just channeling my wife right there by pointing out that I'm not as funny <laughs> as I think I am. <laughs> we have to keep uh, keep your ego in check there, Jason. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for that. <laughs> Uh, how about upcoming events? Anything on the horizon that's interesting? Yeah, yeah. There's a few things booked, uh, but one that's going uh, to be fun is um, another NRF thing. They're doing a live webinar about um, global trends from the reopening of stores. Uh, and they've asked uh, Sucharita uh, Kodai Malpuru, um, uh, longtime friend of the show, and myself to... Um, kind of share some of the global trends that we're seeing from markets that may be reopened sooner than the U.S. has, like in particular China and, uh, you know, what we can learn from those those markets in terms of how things are likely to reopen here. And uh, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but I think there's going to be a third guest panelist um, that we can't announce yet. But hopefully, uh, as if Suturin and I weren't enough, that'll make it even more interesting. So that's a webinar on on June 8th. So if uh, people are interested in registering for that, I will put a link in the show notes uh, for that as well. Registering right now. I'm curious to find out who the mysterious third guest is. Yes, I know that's uh, it's what we call uh, a teaser in the, in the professional promotion biz as I'm in. Nice. Uh, and I spoiler alert, it's not me. So boom, that narrows it down to 300 million other potential guests, I guess. 
Exactly. Most of which would not be as interesting as you. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay. People get enough of the, the Jason Scott show. We want to keep it exclusive here. Exactly. Can only have one of us on our shows at a time. Exactly. Awesome. Well, let's jump into news. It wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. So, Jason, I saw a couple of interesting things going on with Amazon. So, first of all, let's talk about logistics. I don't know about you, but with um, you know, the kind of pandemic and all the other stuff going on, the Amazon Prime vans have been humming here in my neighborhood. Um, and then I saw that Amazon is uh, beefing up their plane fleet. Uh, they uh, they have about 80 now. Um, they've added 12 recently, and they have plans to get to 200 planes. Uh, putting that into comparison, FedEx has 650 planes, so still very small compared to FedEx. Um, and then I, uh, being in the fleet fleet world uh, here suddenly, uh, am very interested in the size of their fleet. And it's really interesting. So Amazon rolled out their delivery service provider program. And when they did that, they announced they had acquired 20,000 Mercedes Sprinters. And that is early 19, they announced that. Um, and then since then, they've been really quiet about updating the number of vehicles in that fleet. And I, I feel like they probably have doubled, if not tripled it. Um, so another thing I've learned watching Amazon over the last 20 years is when they get really quiet about something, that means that there's something going on there. Um, so, so I feel like they've really grown that fleet. And then the other news uh, on the fleet side is they did place an order with Rivian, who is the electric truck provider. Um, they ordered kind of a hundred thousand of, of those trucks. Now that's out there. I think that was a 2021, 2022 kind of thing. And I'm sure it's going to take years for Rivian to produce that many vehicles. Um, but that was interesting for those of you that, that keep up with that. Um, and then, um, you know, we reported on a previous news show that, there was rumors that Amazon was going to move prime day from its home in June, late June to September. That was never confirmed or denied by Amazon, but they have announced that they are doing a June 22nd summer sale. Uh, I'm doing air quotes for those of you that can't see me, which is everybody, uh, you know, so, so it's really interesting. So it's almost kind of like they're keeping the slot, toning it down, and then maybe they'll do a September event. Um, and, you know, they just, they essentially said, um, kind of the messaging was that they were doing this to jumpstart summer sales. What do you think about, uh, the logistics moves and then the summer sale, Jason? Yeah, it's, it's complicated. So, uh, the logistic moves, um, yeah, like, is, uh, there's going to be some other logistics news, non-Amazon news later in the show that kind of dovetails on this, but it's so smart and such a huge advantage to own more of your own fulfillment and logistics capability. And that's like, that's going to be an increasing competitive advantage. So even if Amazon never does anything, but use that capacity for their own internal uh, needs, um, it's a big deal. And like when you're comparing Amazon to any traditional retailer, like saying you own 80 737s is like, you know, uh, a pretty giant step ahead of Walmart or, or anyone else in terms of, of logistic capability. And I, I, I haven't heard anything about this, but I'm partly wondering, uh, since like all the airlines, uh, the, the passenger airlines aren't using their planes, are planes like, can you get used planes just cheaper right now? 
as they all downsize. I don't know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be a, yeah. Used car markets crashing. I'm sure that the plane market is, is tough too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Smarts up there that just going to extend the the digital advantage that Amazon has. Uh, more on that later. Uh, and then the sale thing is really complicated. Uh, Prime is so successful that a lot of my clients now try to counter program against Prime Day. And so uh, an unintended consequence of all this ambiguity about Prime Day is it's driving a bunch of other retailers nuts, right? Because <clears throat> they'd like to plan some counter programming and they have no idea like when or what Amazon's going to do. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, I think it's really interesting if they're going to land in a September date because um, potentially September ends up being a better permanent date for that big tent post than um, the, the traditional uh, summer date does. Right. Um, because it, it, uh, potentially just kicks off holiday even earlier. Um, and if they can kind of maintain that momentum, uh, like from September all the way through holiday, that that could be interesting. Uh, there's some risk associated with that, but they're in a way they're going to get a free test this year to see how it goes. So so I'm, I'm going to be watching that that prime day carefully. And then this September date sliding this in is um, interesting and controversial. A, like, Vendors aren't getting as much notice as they they normally would. So in a way, this is like the first Prime Day where vendors got kind of, you know, are getting solicited at the last minute to see if they want to participate and what kind of deals they want to offer. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so in some ways it won't be as comp- it certainly won't be as comprehensive as a traditional Prime Day is uh, that, you know, it's debatable whether Amazon is like all the way back with their service levels. And so. Um, you know, adding a big demand spike in June is a little risky, right? Like, because if they're, um, uh, if if I look at customer sat scores from Amazon, they've they've dropped down. There's a lot more negative reviews for fulfillment from Amazon the last couple months than there usually are. Um, and now, you know, they're going to put more pressure on their system. So it's a little interesting that they feel confident enough to do a summer sale. Um, and then, you know, there's always going to be detractors, but there's a lot of people talking about, like, is just the climate in the country um, right to be doing a, a a big sale right now when there's so much, you know, negative stuff going on? Um, you know, I don't know. That's that's tough, uh, tough to judge. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think one way or another, uh, this, the remainder of this year is going to be the mother of all liquidation sales as all the apparel companies try to you know, sell that that stale inventory that's been locked in their stores for the last three months. And, you know, everybody's going to be downsizing. Tons of stores are closing and all that distress inventory is going to get liquidated through all these other channels. So I think like, you know, the Amazon summer sale is going to be one of many um, price oriented promotions that consumers are just going to get flooded with. It's going to it's going to be a really interesting consumer experiment, but um, don't pay full price for anything this year. Okay. Um, I will take that advice to heart. Yeah. Uh, so I saw that um, someone, I can't forget who did the investigation on this, but there was a, there was a building sold in your neck of the woods and people have identified that Amazon's up to something in that building. Yeah. I have said this before and uh, I, you know, um, people are skeptical, but I'm convinced that Chicago is Amazon's favorite market. Almost every new cool thing they do 
Um, they either do in Chicago first or they bring it to sh- Chicago extremely quickly after they do it somewhere else first. Um, and so uh, for listeners that follow Amazon closely, there is a new Amazon grocery store that was scheduled to already be open in Woodland Hills, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Um, it's about a 20, memory serves 22,000 square foot store. It was scheduled to open already. Like reporters had gone by and it was pretty close to opening um, prior to COVID. And then as a result of COVID, the store didn't open, but it it's very clear that Amazon has been using it as a dark store to do um, grocery deliveries. So we've seen a bunch of delivery drivers in the parking lot shuttling orders back and forth. Um, and a lot of speculation, this, this store is not, it's a grocery store. It's not branded Whole Foods. It's much bigger than Amazon Go. Uh, Amazon uh, went on record and said it's not going to have uh, the cashierless self-checkout system that, that uh, Amazon Go stores have. Hashtag JWAT. Um, so uh, it's going to be a traditional grocery store under a different banner than Whole Foods. And then the big revelation was that um, a significant chunk of this 22,000 square foot store is what we call an automated micro fulfillment center in the back of the store. So this is a um, an auto picking robot that stores a lot of the groceries in different climate zones. And, uh, you know, when you, when it gets an order, it fills all the bags with all the products. Um, and so this is a, a, a brand new grocery concept from Amazon. Uh, we're super excited to see it. If that that auto replenishment system is already running, that's a great tool to use for a dark store. So that makes sense why they're doing this thing in L.A. And so now they've announced a second store, which is almost certainly going to be in the same banner as that L.A. store here in Chicago. But it's 43,000 square feet. So that's very large by grocery store standards. To put things in perspective, it's a former Baby's R Us store. Um, so it's it's a is that bigger than a Whole Foods. A Whole Foods feels they, we have one that has like an extended food. Yeah, they range. About. The biggest Whole Foods are in that 42. I think there might even be a 50,000 square foot Whole Foods store. But but a lot of Whole Foods stores are in the 20 to 30,000 square feet. So 43 is on the big side for Whole Foods. Um, like like a bigger Whole Foods, this store like is reputed to have uh, restaurants and dining service and things in. It's going to be interesting to see if those were pre-COVID plans and how those plans change because of covid um but i'm i'm excited like even even if we're not doing a lot of international travel sometime this summer the store is supposed to open so i'll get to go do a a store visit and report on uh, what amazon sees the future of uh of uh non-whole foods grocery looks like so it's that is some uh, exciting news is the robot thing a modified kiva or is it a whole new new no, like so. So third party, uh, if you're in a general merchandise system, like there's a couple of these automated picking systems out there, like um, Perfect Pick and Auto Store, and how they mostly work is they're bin based. So products sit in a bin in a big grid, and then these like robots can shuffle around the the bins. Um, and so most of these micro fulfillment centers, and these are companies like Fabric and. Uh, uh, takeoff technologies. Uh, Walmart has one they invested in called Alphabot. Um, they're these. They're kind of like the automated picking systems, except the bins live in different temperature zones. So usually they have an ambient temperature zone, a refrigerated temperature zone, and a frozen temperature zone. So that when they get a grocery order, 
they can, you know, grab the cereal from the ambient temperature and the the um, milk from the refrigerated and the, the frozen pizzas from the the frozen, aggregate those all in a shopping bag and then put them in your car for curbside pickup or put them in a delivery guy's car uh, for home delivery. And uh, my speculation is that's also going to be used for in-store customers. So I have a feeling you're not going to be shopping for cereal in these stores and walking down an aisle of cereal. I think you're going to get your cereal by uh, placing an order on your mobile phone and the, and the, the micro fulfillment center filling the bag with your cereal. And I have a feeling the main like physical things you're going to do in the store are shop for things that you want to pick yourself, like produce and meat and things like that. But that's entirely just my speculation at this point. Um, but those micro fulfillment centers are super important. Uh, it, it reduces the cost to pick a grocery order. And remember a grocery order likely has 60 to 120 items in it versus a, uh, an apparel order is going to have like one to two items in it. Um, so the cost to pick that order, the auto replenishment micro fulfillment systems uh, reduce that cost by about 90 percent. So they're they're basically essential if if we're ever going to get the unit economics for digital grocery to make sense. Very cool. The and we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the show. How about uh, any interesting Amazon news you're non Amazon news you're tracking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a few random things. Um, I probably think this thing's more interesting than anyone else, but Gucci has launched a pretty clever service um, in response to COVID. So they're calling it a personalized video shopper. And so essentially what they've done is they've uh, set up a store in their customer service center and they have customer service reps uh, are like literally using a a FaceTime-like service um, to show you merchandise um, that that you're thinking about buying. So it's kind of like a sales-assisted experience or a clienteling experience over a video conference. Um, so you're thinking about buying a handbag, like the a salesperson that you're talking live to can actually like sh- grab that handbag off the shelf and show it to you, for example. And like, honestly, I don't care that much about that feature for Gucci, but I actually think that that experience makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't remember. We've talked about it on the show a lot, but most of my appliances have died during COVID. And so I've had to like replace all my my laundry and kitchen appliances. And we had to shop all those without going to the store. Right. And it, it frankly would have been super helpful if a salesperson could have like gone on FaceTime and showed me, you know, some of the refrigerators they were recommending in person. Um, and I just think in this new world where less people are going to be allowed in a store and where, you know, they're trying to amplify the effectiveness of human salespeople, um, this idea of uh, salespeople telepresence is gonna, going to be a bigger idea. So I'm interested to see how customers uh, take to this, the Gucci version of that, that experience. Uh, would you want a, a live salesperson to help you with your Gucci shopping, Scott? I insist on it generally when I do my Gucci shopping. I was at, um, where was I? Uh, I was in a foreign land. I was in Italy okay. and uh, went into the Louis Vuitton store and As they were one doing this. Of course. Um, this is way before COVID. Um, 
And then, you know, it was interesting because there was two lines. There was a Chinese line um, and then a non-Chinese line. And the Chinese line, they had Chinese speakers that would come and meet the Chinese people uh, that were in that line. And then those folks, very frequently, um, it seemed like they had been paid to come almost as a personal physical shopper, but then they would fire up a FaceTime. And so, so you had a good, a not Gucci, but a Louis Vuitton salesperson, a Chinese person. And then they would be talking to someone on a FaceTime and showing the wall of product. And they would, you know, I watched this, it would, it would, each transaction was like a good 30 minutes. They would pull down some bags. Someone on the FaceTime would say, well, show me that one over there. And then they would pull it down and look inside of it. So there, it was clearly the person on the FaceTime that was doing the shopping. So, so, yeah. so maybe, maybe Gucci kind of got this idea from some of their Chinese shoppers watching how they're doing it. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, we've had, I'm, I'm on the board of a nonprofit that um, helps homeless folks um, that that are coming out of homelessness. They frequently get into um, you know a, a residence um, like a habitat uh, or something like that, but they don't have any furniture. So this this company provides this really cool showroom where they can come pick out their furniture. But right now they can't come to the showroom, so they're doing the same thing. They're doing uh, FaceTimes with the clients to show them, you know, here's six different couches we have. Do you want this green one? Oh, what are the measurements? Uh, that kind of thing. So, so it's interesting. I think, I think innovation comes from these this necessity of if we can't be there, what's the next best thing? Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. And you think about it like a, a pre-COVID problem is you've got a super busy store in Manhattan, and then there's a, a store in um, Iowa that's not very busy. Um, why can't you use those salespeople in Iowa to help customers in in that Manhattan store or vice versa, depending on the time zones? Um, and that makes a lot of sense. And then you think about a, a, a highly sales assisted experience like a Neiman Marcus. Um, if you go to the website, you don't get any of that personalized service that you're used to from the store. And why is that? Right. And as people are are shifting to digital shopping more and more and are forced to because of covid. Uh, you know, it just makes sense that you'd want to replicate some of that high touch um, sales assisted experience. So I, I think we're going to see more of this. And, you know, in, in most ways, COVID is kind of a, a time machine that's accelerating things like I, this is the kind of experience people would have talked about for a long time, but wouldn't have done because it's too much effort and it's too low a priority to do. But now because of COVID, they're they're, you know, quickly putting stuff out there and, and seeing if customers like it or not. So I'm, I'm excited about those kinds of tests. Uh, I teased earlier in the Amazon news that there was even more logistics news. Um, so let's jump right to that. Uh, earlier, um, or the end of last week, UPS announced that they were going to start charging uh, surcharges um, for big shippers. And, uh, and this is the latest step in something that we've been seeing a lot of... Um, UPS and FedEx are seeing shipping demand right now for e-commerce that's very comparable to what you would typically see over a holiday. And, and you know, traditionally, UPS and FedEx scale up for holiday and they hire a bunch of seasonal labor and they do all these things to try to handle that holiday peak. So now they're having a equivalent peak that they were not, you know, uh, that they had no ability to prepare for in any way. And so what's happening is, their demand outpaces their capacity. And so when you when you have a limited supply and high demand, what you do is you charge more for that supply. And so uh, early on, like several weeks ago, 
UPS, you know, noticed this trend that like all these closed retailers were trying to use their stores as dart stores and ship stuff from inventory from stores. And that all required more UPS capacity. So UPS put a surcharge on that. Now they're putting a, a surcharge even on the fulfillment centers because they're just dramatically exceeding their forecast for shipping packages. And then uh, this week, uh, FedEx kind of matched that surcharge and they've added some some uh, enhanced charges as well. And so, you know, you're a retailer. You're not selling anything through your stores right now. Your only bright spot is e-commerce, which is way up. A normal piece of bad news is that unit economics on that e-commerce order usually are worse than the in-store order was. And now you get even worse news. Uh, UPS and, and FedEx want to charge you more than usual to ship that stuff. Um, and it's a real conundrum. Like if... if um, these shifts to digital are permanent, um, then the costs are just going to go up because UPS and FedEx just don't have that extra capacity. Um, and that's why I was sort of alluding to the fact that it's a, a huge overwhelming advantage to Amazon that they can deliver a good chunk of their um, their packages themselves. And then, you know, they're, the the last leg in this stool of, of logistics, uh, the... The United States Postal Service, which most e-commerce businesses heavily rely on, is in huge, huge financial jeopardy right now. And nobody knows how that's going to play out, if they're going to get bailed out or they're going to be able to find some way to continue operations without getting bailed out. Or we're going to see some significantly diminished service from the U.S. Post Office. So um, it it is a very tumultuous time in uh, e-commerce logistics. And these surcharges are in effect now, or they're talking about holiday? No, they're in effect now. Uh, wow. Like okay. you would expect. So normally, what what the shippers do is they ask for a forecast, and they price your your services based on that forecast. And then, if you significantly exceed that forecast, they they charge you surcharges over holiday. Um, and you know, pre holiday is when you normally are going to see the rate increases, the kind of annual rate increases that the shippers have. But now they're putting these surcharges in effect for summer. Got it. Wow. Crazy. Preparing for the summer sale, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's going to be super interesting stuff to play out. Um, and uh, that's uh, going to be another nail in the coffin for I know what's your favorite e-commerce uh, business, um, which is uh, Kylie Jenner Cosmetics. OMG. I love me some Kardashians. Tell me more. Yeah. Uh, well, so, you know, uh, about a year ago, there was all this press that, uh, uh, Kylie Jenner had become the, the, the youngest self-made billionaire. Um, and that was largely as a result of, you know, her being an influencer, like most members of her family, but instead of hawking other people's stuff, she launched her own cosmetics brand. And, you know, there were all these reports that it was wildly successful and, um, uh, like, you know, there were increasing estimates that that she had sold over a billion dollars and more than five hundred million dollars a year. Um, and, you know, her like, as we know now, didn't necessarily know at the time um, the her her uh, PR agency is like, you know, selling all these stories about how successful she is and how successful the cosmetics industry is. And, you know, frankly, it this this e-commerce site is frequently cited as the biggest case study for Shopify. Like it's it's supposedly the highest volume, highest revenue store on Shopify, featured prominently in a, in a um, shareholder meeting for for Shopify. Um, well, last year 
the she sold half the business to a large cosmetics um company Cody and um uh Cody rather and uh uh the financials, they're a public company. The financials just came out and it's a significant business, but it's way smaller than uh, um, had been represented. So so for the last 12 months, they had one hundred and seventy seven million in sales. So that that's a, a decent sort of mid mid sized D to C brand, um, but it's nowhere close to the unicorn that they were they were sort of claiming. Well, that's so revenue, they value and revenue aren't the same, right? No, no. Uh, but they had claimed that, like, I want to say over like an 18 month period that they had achieved a billion in revenue. Um, okay. Yeah, the, that's... Now, confusingly, the valuation that, that Cody paid was uh, like reported, but, you know, never confirmed that, that it was close to a billion dollar valuation. Um, now she only sold fifty percent of it, and like who knows what sort of um, uh, incentives were, you know, performance incentives were tied to that. But either uh, if if they paid like it was a, a billion dollar run rate, then they they wildly overpaid, and I kind of I kind of doubt that they like fraudulently represented revenue in the sale. Uh, so I have a feeling they just knew it was a smaller business than the the PR folks had been pitching to Fortune magazine. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so sad well, news. Kyle is probably not a billionaire. Well, there's you know if it's growing fast, it could get a five times. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and so, if it was like wildly profitable, or there was subscription revenue in there, it's, it's not uh, out of the realm of possibility. No, uh, it's again, it's still a successful business, and and like you know, I think she's objectively a successful entrepreneur. I just, uh, it's kind of funny when they're like dramatically inflating their own success. I guess. Uh, yeah. I'm shocked. Yes, yes, I know. Shocked and disappointed. Um, so I don't know why we put these stories in this order because it feels really incongruous that we have these uh, these like random stories. But um, uh, another one that's interesting to me is um, Instacart has launched a self service media network. Um, so I don't I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. I was not super bullish on Instacart going into COVID, like for a variety of reasons. I kind of felt like they had, you know, served their purpose, but they were um, declining in uh, in utility for their traditional market, and that they were having to kind of chase smaller grocers and and kind of move down market. Um, and COVID totally boosted uh, their prospects. So they've they've had a killer quarter. Um, they've become way more important for way more grocers than I would have anticipated, um, and. One of the ramifications of that is they now have enough traffic on their site that they they have a, a, a meaningfully large audience to sell advertisements to. Um, and, you know, every retailer is trying to model Amazon and launch their own advertising network. But a huge problem with most of these retailers is their traffic just isn't big enough to have very good reach. So if you're if you're Walmart, you know, you uh, you have a pretty big reach so you can you can credibly launch an ad network. But like, you know, even at like Target or Kroger size, um, it's it's a pretty niche audience. And so now like Instacart, because they aggregate shoppers across so many different grocers, um, Instacart becomes the, you know, third or fourth largest potential retail media network out there. 
And in a world when people can't go in stores to see in-store displays anymore, uh, brands are are looking to invest a lot more in retail media networks than they were a quarter ago. So I, um, th- this is another favorable trend to Instagram uh, that, that we'll be watching closely. And Instagram has launched it with an API so you can actually do uh, self-service ads and programmatic ads. So you can kind of, you know, buy, buy stuff on an automated basis and have it show up in Instagram. I'm sorry, Instacart. Yeah, I feel I'm a, uh, unlike you, I guess I'm a frequent Instacart user and they'll do a lot of clever things. Like you'll throw something in the cart and that brand will then come and say, Hey, we'll kind of cover your shipping. If you throw two more of our things in the cart and they'll give you like, then they'll put you in an experience where you're just kind of picking from that brand's items that are available in that store. So yeah. is that, is that kind of like a, is that an ad unit inside of there that they're buying or? It, it was, I, I would say that historically those have been more manual. Um, so now they've kind of made it programmatic. Yeah. Now, I mean, the big news is they've added this programmatic aspect, but I actually think you're going to see a lot more of that. Like when Instacart was doing it before, it was kind of controversial because on on the one hand, you're eroding conversion, right? Like you're making it more complicated to check out. You put the stuff in you wanted and you just want to leave. And now they're trying to sell you a bunch of extra stuff. Um, there's very high abandonment in e-commerce. So, so like by doing those offers, you're you're hurting conversion and increasing abandonment. Um, but the the flip side is there's not a lot of um, unplanned purchases and impulse buys in in digital e-commerce. And so by having those offers, you know, close to checkout or or those dynamic offers based on what's already in your cart, um, they're they're increasing the size of your basket and. Uh, in the old world, they were, uh, you know, most gross retailers were just happy to close the sale. So they were loath to do a lot of that cart based promotions. Um, in the new world, uh, a, a much more significant chunk of their business is now digital and they need that that bigger cart to make it profitable. So I think you're going to see a lot of retailers adopt more of those kinds of, of uh, a dynamic uh, marketing tactics in the cart. Uh, I, I think half the time I talked about that Instacart story, I called Instacart Instagram. So apologize for that. Um, and perhaps that's because the next news item is, uh, that, that, uh, Target is the latest, um, brand to be leveraging the, the native checkout feature in Instagram. And this is super interesting to me because, you know, uh, They've, they've had this Instagram checkout for a while and they launched it with like 20 brands and they're all brands that make sense that would be trying to sell stuff on Instagram. So they're mostly beauty brands or fashion brands. Um, Nike has had some interesting successes on the platform, but they were all like companies that with a small number of SKUs um, that, you know, were heavily like influencer driven categories. Um, and now uh, Target has put thousands of SKUs for sale on Instagram. So that's going to be an interesting test and like a less obvious test to me. So I'll, I'll be really curious to see if that gets any traction or, or how, how that plays out. Um, obviously, Target does have some fashion and some home decor. So maybe it's going to be skewed in that direction. But I'm, I'm going to be following that, that new pilot quickly. Um, but however you slice it, it's it's further proof that the the social networks are really leaning into commerce, and especially as COVID has kind of accelerated digital commerce, they they all want to be playing in that space. Very cool. Uh, uh, you've been watching Shopify's uh, market cap soar lately. 
Uh, yeah. So again, like, uh, hey, you you see the trend for COVID is that it's shifting more people to shop digitally. So who, who can you invest in to ride that wave? One of the best investments has been Shopify and their market cap is now up to 90 billion. And uh, shockingly, like that's getting super close to IBM's market cap at 114 billion. Um, and so uh, it's going to be super interesting if, if uh, they keep going at their current traje- uh, trajectories. In the next quarter, we could see Shopify have a larger market cap than all of IBM, which is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, they should have dumped all the mainframes, all the services, and then put all the wood behind the WebSphere e-commerce engine and made it available to SMBs. Yeah. Who knew that was the strategy? And yeah. don't buy Red Hat. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Cloud, but, but forget exactly cloud, right. forget blockchain. Like, like... IBM has this huge portfolio of products. Like one small product in that portfolio was at one time the world's most successful commercial e-commerce platform, IBM WebSphere Commerce. Um, and it it literally had like the largest market share of enterprise clients and, you know, the most big clients relying on it. And then you had this like uh, startup platform that was, you know, exclusively catering to small businesses in Shopify. And you... You fast forward five years and uh, IBM had to sell off that commerce platform. And now it's owned by a, another uh, a integrator. Um, and Shopify is almost as big as all of IBM. It's just it's a uh, it's it's really interesting. Yeah. And remember Yahoo, uh, you know, back when I started or we had to do a Yahoo store integration because it was the hot platform. They totally squandered that. That was that was a good platform. And if they had just kept up with the times and mobile and everything, that could have been you know, a huge oh, valuation. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, like, you know, who else had a, a, a third party web store uh, platform for small businesses at one point was Amazon. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, so they, you know, arguably like they could have leaned into that and, you know, not, not ever created the opportunity for Shopify to exist. Yeah. And it's funny because Shopify is adding FBA and payments and all the stuff Amazon already has. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are, are trying to position Shopify as the big Amazon competitor. I don't particularly buy that narrative. I think they're way more complimentary than they are competitive but like you know they are they are like you know slowly shifting into a more competitive posture with each other so that's that's going to be interesting to see play out um and then i've saved the most exciting news for last scott uh i saw this on twitter um but go ahead and throw it out there yeah this is perhaps (laughs) the most covid friendly invention of all times uh a scientist in japan has invented a lickable screen and uh, it can simulate like any any food flavor on your tongue when you lick this little portable device. Okay. So. And what are the use cases? Um, well, <laughs> uh, it it uh, virtual shopping for food, right? Like you you wanna um, uh, decide which dishes to order from your your Blue Apron or or your Factor or whatever your meal service is or try the new flavor of Oreos before you go to the store. Um, you know, in theory, you could have one of these peripherals on your computer at home and you you could fry the the green tea uh, uh, Oreos um, or the cherry blossom Starbucks latte uh, at home before you make a trip to go buy one in in person. Um, I, you know, 
I'm I'm uh, slightly skeptical, but it's awesome just to talk about a lickable screen. Yeah, there was a smell-o-vision thing. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Like some accessory that had like all these different... There's something like X number of things that mixed together can make almost any smell. Or Yeah. And so someone it, had that and it never really caught on, I don't think. Yeah, there are... Uh, so there are a lot of commercial um, or a factory emitters and there are retailers that use them. Like there's a lot of retailers that have a signature smell that they pipe into the store. Um, casinos are sort of famous for this. Um, and you know, there's, there are experts that know what kind of smells like encourage people to dwell longer and spend more money and things like that. Um, so smell is a super important, um, part of the experience and I, I totally get it, but, uh, uh, man, uh, you know, customers at the moment don't even want to use a touchscreen, much less a wick screen. So, uh, I feel like the timing may not be perfect. Yeah. We'll see. I think um, you owe it to our listeners to buy one of these and then you can report on it. Oh, I for sure will. And side note, well, I think the science is really tricky. In a way, taste is easier to do than smell because there is a, like almost limitless variety of all these esters to make different smells. But like taste is really like five different senses. And so what these guys have figured out is we just need these five different gels that each trigger one of the 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 five taste senses and by just you know delivering them in the right ratios we can simulate almost any any food flavor so it's kind of interesting hmm. and we did promise a shorter lighter show this week so that is going to do it for this show as always if we screwed something up um, more than usual feel free to let us know on twitter or facebook uh, please 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 jump on itunes and give us that five star review um, but we really appreciate everyone listening and, uh, you know, uh, hope everyone is uh, safe and doing as well as possible in these, uh, unprecedented, uh, uncertain times that we're living through right now. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 